Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Presbyterian Church once again. Uh, I am uh, working through a series in the study of Abraham from the book of Genesis, and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18 today, uh, verses 16 and following, uh, just so we can kind of orient ourselves as to where we are in the text. A reminder that the, the last thing that we saw was these three visitors. We saw the hospitality of Abraham, and fundamentally we looked at the hospitality of God uh, to Abraham, uh, and we were looking at these three strangers who became clear, clearly messengers of God when they prophesied about Sarah's uh, birth of Isaac in a year to come. After this, those three visitors leave, and Abraham walks with them for a while. He, he leaves. He, as, a, as a good host, he doesn't just shut the door behind them, but he goes out with them, and he, and he walks with them. And they head off, and they're looking down from the hills of Judea over the plains of Moab to where those great cities are. You'll remember Lot chose that portion of the land for himself, and it included the cities of Sodom and the cities of Gomorrah and other cities. And they're looking down at this land. And this is where we pick up our story. So with that, why don't we turn to God's word. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 and following. This is God's word. Then the men, the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went down with them and set, and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised, what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have, what they have, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within this city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place. For their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he, that is the Lord, said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, 
for the sake of twenty I will not destroy you. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come with fear and trepidation before your word as it reveals to us your holiness and your justice. But, O Lord, it also shows us your mercy and your grace. Help us to see these things, to wonder at them, and to see through it the Lord Jesus and the salvation that is ours in him. Lord, help me as your servant, broken and sinful as I am, dust and ashes, to faithfully declare your word. Pray, ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if this is true. You guys can argue with me afterwards. But I think we, we often lean one direction or another. We often are either prone towards wanting justice. Uh, your justice meters are high. Maybe you're one of those who, anytime there's a wrong, you just can't help but say something. You need to address it. It can't go un, unaddressed and undone. It, it is a problem. That there's this sense of longing for justice. It could be at a personal level. As kids, you know, we do this when our siblings get away with something and our parents don't see it. Our parents come along and all they see is us arguing and what do they do? They punish both of us. The justice meters flare up. Wait a minute. I'm not the wrong one here. Why are you punishing both of us? On the other hand, some of us lean in more towards mercy. We're, we're open-armed. We, we want to see the best in everybody. Ah, it's not a big deal. We want to overlook offense and overlook sin. We, we tend to want to cover things up for people. We tend towards that mercy side. And I'm not suggesting that we aren't mixed, right? Sometimes we tend towards justice when it's our it's something done against us, and then we turn towards mercy when we've done something that we've done wrong. Um, but we have personalities, too, that mean one way or the other. One of the things that we find in Scripture is this reality, that God is a God of both justice and mercy. It's not a lean one way or the other. He is fully just and fully merciful in all his being. And so in Micah, when we read these words, we're reminded this is what he calls to us as well, calls for us. He says... In Micah chapter 6, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, justice and to love, ESV says, kindness or steadfast love or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's not an either-or proposition, but it's both and. This morning as we look at our text, I want us to see this. This cry for justice and this cry for mercy. This cry for justice and this cry for mercy, which is ultimately found perfectly at the cross. So we'll look at this in just two parts, the cry for justice and the cry for mercy. Really simple outline here for you. And we want to begin with this cry for justice. 
Our text opens up with Abraham and these three men looking down towards Sodom from the hill country of Judea, looking out over the Dead Sea at the lush valley that Lot claimed earlier, as we mentioned. The text opens up with a divine dialogue, which Abraham was not privy to. Moses gives us uh, a picture into this dialogue that, that, that the Lord has with these two messengers, these two angels. And the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed for him. Should I hide this from him? Why? Well, I, the reason I shouldn't, he's talking amongst his people, because I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what is promised. The Lord has this little conversation, the sidebar with these messengers. So the Lord determined to tell Abraham what he was about to do. Namely, that he was going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the question is, why does Abraham need to know? Why, why is it important for Abraham to, to bear witness to this act, to know what's about to happen? Well, a text, I think, gives us two reasons why Abraham needed to know. The first reason why Abraham needed to know that the Lord was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness was this. He tells us right in the text, he says, Abraham, that is, is chosen to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. This is the reasoning that, that the Lord gives here. You see, Abraham, before the visitors came, had made a covenant with the Lord. We saw this in the covenant of circumcision. Um, I'm sure they remembered this vividly, Abraham's household. They were probably still feeling the effects to some degree or another. They, they remembered what this was. It was a vivid picture of what God required of them. Holiness, separateness, righteousness, otherness, obedience to God's commands. They were to live distinct lives unto the Lord. But that memory is going to fade over time. Over time, Abraham and Abraham's children will forget, and eventually they'll follow their own devices and be ruled by their own desires and their own sins. And, and I, I want to ask the question, isn't, the, isn't this really the case for all of us and all for all our children as well? That we come to faith that we're, we're on fire for the Lord. We are blown away by His love and His mercy that He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but He forgives our sins and washes us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and we are, quote-unquote, on fire for the Lord. Any Christian who's been a Christian for a length of time realizes that feeling starts to fade. We get lulled into a sense of spiritual lethargy. We begin to forget the weightiness of our sin. We sometimes forget the holiness of our God. That we're called to walk humbly before Him. I, I don't remember where I heard this. Um, I'm sure it's been put out in many ways and many times. 
Um, but it's a scary paradigm that rings true, and it's this. Often, for the first generation of Christians, the gospel is central. They go, you become a Christian, and you proclaim it. You're out there, you believe it, you want everybody to know it. And, and some of you who've come to faith for recently, for, for you, came, you didn't grow up in a Christian household, this is you. You love the Lord with all your heart. You want to follow Him. You trust in Him. You proclaim Him. But sometimes, in the second generation, the gospel gets pushed out to the margins. It gets sidelined. There's, there's still that formality of faith, that religiosity that you, you grew up in. You're used to going to church. You, you have that experience of just the rhythms of religion, and you keep it. But the, the gospel itself gets sidelined, and the gospel becomes assumed. So in one generation it was proclaimed, in the second generation it, was, it gets assumed. But by the third generation, the gospel is lost altogether. It gets denied, proclaimed to assumed, to deny in the course of three generations. This is a paradigm that, unfortunately, you see happen over the course of the church throughout its history. And, and as I look out at our covenant children, this is a particular call to all you kids. Don't assume, by virtue of you being here, that you're a Christian. You've got to profess faith trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for your sins and who saves you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. You, young children, need to make a profession of faith to put your trust in Jesus. You can't assume the gospel. It's a warning to us. But it happens quite easily. And one of the reasons is that we fail to see clearly the gravity, the weightiness of our sin, and the holiness and justice of our God. This is why the Lord tells Abraham about his plan. In fact, the story of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah becomes a paradigm throughout Scripture to remind us what it means to be, a rebellion, a, a, to be rebellious against God and to sin. It becomes a paradigm for God's judgment of what He will do to all sinners. It stands as a warning to us and a call for us to repent and believe. So, parents, just talk to your children. You have a role, and this is not just parents, but you church family have a role in, their, in your children's life to teach them the things of God, to remind them of the centrality of the gospel, of their need of a Savior. If we don't do this, be assured we will sideline the gospel. It will be assumed, and it will be lost. God's people are to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. But there's a second embedded reason, I think, for God revealing to Abraham what he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not just to be a reminder to him and to his children after him that God is holy and just and requires 
righteousness and that the only pathway for that ultimately is in Christ. But I think there's a secondary reason. Abraham is to be a blessing to all the nations. He opens with that. He says that as, as part of his declaration of who Abraham is. God made covenant by promising to him, Abraham, you are going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So, why does he tell about his plans for Sodom? Well, he reveals the ultimate end of all sinners. Which does what for Abraham? It pushes him to cry out for mercy for Sodom. We're going to look at that in a minute. We'll come back to the cry for mercy. But right now, I just wanted to notice that one of the reasons that it's revealed to Abraham is that Abraham might be a blessing to the nations. And we see this way, the way in which um, Abraham and his children are blessings to the nations as we go throughout the story of Abraham. If you get all the way to the end of Genesis, you come to the story of Joseph. Joseph, who gets taken away into slavery in Egypt, ultimately gets raised up by God and becomes a blessing, not just to Egypt, but to all the surrounding nations as he cares for their needs. But of course, the greater heir, the greater child of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is the one who brings salvation to all the nations. In knowing that the end of sin is destruction and judgment, therefore, as Abraham's children, we too are included in that, we ought to have great compassion on the world around us. Being salt and light, living righteously, fighting for justice, and proclaiming the hope of salvation while preparing ourselves for that great day when God will bring final judgment. Hear these words from Peter in 2 Peter, who, who brings up this very picture for us. 2 Peter chapter 3, 8 says, But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But he goes on and he says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting, uh, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness, justice dwells. It's our posture. As we consider the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah, what's our posture both towards the world in which we live and the judgment that's to come? Are we both crying out for justice as well as crying for mercy? But before we get there again, let's look briefly at the reason for God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in particular. I think we need to go and look at this. We're going to look at it in more detail in the, in next week. But for now, I want to just kind of highlight some of the broad brushstrokes. 
Because without understanding that, we won't be able to soberly examine our own lives, nor the world in which, within which we live. First, all sin deserves God's judgment. All of it. But not, not all sin is equally heinous. All sin deserves God's judgment, finally and forever, but not all sin is equally heinous. Sodom and Gomorrah stand out in Scripture, and over and over again they're brought up as a picture of the full blossom of sin and wickedness. Sin at its height, you might say. Sin at its greatest magnitude. My mom used to always say, if I did something really bad, she'd say, this is beyond the pale. I don't know exactly where that saying comes from, but we all know what it means. You've gone too far. You are outside the bounds of acceptability. You are far gone. It's beyond the pale. Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah becomes a symbol in the rest of Scripture for the judgment of God that is to come on account of the gross and horrendous wickedness of sin. Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Luke says this, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You see, there was a great outcry, the text tells us in Genesis, a great outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was the outcry coming from these cities? As I mentioned, we'll look more closely next week. But I think Jude summarizes it well. There's a little letter in your New Testament. You maybe read it. It's kind of wild at points. But Jude, in the New Testament, this little letter, likens certain people who are corrupting the church in his day to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, in his day, Judas speaking, also relying on their dreams to file the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These cities were marked by sexual immorality, Violence and greed to such a degree, as we'll look at next week, that the sin had reached a high pitch. It's like the proverbial uh, soprano. When she reaches that high pitch and you see the glass shatter, the sound was so deafening, it reaches to the heavens. The Lord says to Abraham that their sin is very grave. That word grave, you know, we get words like gravity or gravitas or weightiness. Uh, the Hebrew word is actually weighty. That's the, the it, you know, you, you, you have a, two words that are very similar in the Old Testament. One of them is, is the word for glory, which means weightiness. But this word here means weightiness, but it also has that sense, um, if you will, of seriousness of the matter. It's weighty. It was not a little thing. It deserved nothing less than the wrath and judgment of God. It's a lot. We can't help but look at our world and think, is it really any different? Is it not marked by sexual immorality, violence, and greed? 
And we say that about our culture. Or like the folks about whom Jude was writing, those who defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme. And sometimes in the midst of this world, we can look out and say, God, do you see what's going on? Do you not notice the world and the way it functions and the wickedness that prevails and is everywhere? Make no mistake. God is aware. The cries for justice go up to heaven and they are just as weighty, just as significant. And scripture is clear. Just as what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah will happen when Christ returns. It's a paradigm that God uses. God is aware. And just as Peter said, for the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. God will judge the world according to its deeds. Now we all respond a little differently when you hear a sermon like this. Some of you are comforted. Some of you are, yes, Lord, bring justice, let it roll down, give us a sense of relief. Some of you are uncomfortable. The idea of God's judgment and wrath make you uneasy. You feel that we should focus on God's love and mercy and that this kind of doctrine leads to judgmental Christianity. But I don't think we have, as I mentioned earlier, an either-or prospect. We ought to long for justice. We ought to hate evil and sin. We ought to want to see its end and demise. It's right for us to call out to the Lord to come quickly, to hasten the day, as Peter says. But we also ought to cry out for mercy. That God would, in fact, change hearts and bring about repentance and faith. Jonah got it wrong. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. But his hope was that they wouldn't repent and that God would destroy Nineveh. But what happens? Nineveh repents. This was the most wicked nation in that day. They, they had come and they had put their thumb of oppression on God's people. And, and Jonah says, is so frustrated by God. Jonah wanted justice, not mercy. And so God chastised him for it. But on the other side, Israel was chastened by the prophets chastened Israel. Why? Because they did not do justice. In fact, we'll look at this a little later. They're described as Sodom and Gomorrah by God. The people of God because they did not do justice. One of the reasons we struggle to cry for mercy is because we fail to see how we ourselves are in need of mercy. It's easy to look at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, yeah, they deserve justice. They did. It's much harder to look at ourselves and say, yeah, we deserve God's wrath. But we do. 
One of the most troubling words the prophet spoke to the people of God was likening them to Sodom and Gomorrah, as I mentioned. Jeremiah says this to the people of God many, many years later. He says, But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are the end product where our sin, no matter how small, ultimately leads and what our sin ultimately deserves. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, quoting the prophets, no one is righteous, no, not one. There is a cry for justice that rings out from the earth. And friends, it will roll down. Don't doubt it. But there's also a cry for mercy. There is a cry for mercy. Abraham hears of the imminent destruction of these cities and his heart goes out to them. Remember, he was, he was called to be a blessing to the nations. And as soon as he hears of God's plan of judgment, he thinks, well, what if there's any righteous there? Don't destroy the whole city on account. His heart goes out to him. Why? Well, I, I think partially because of that blessing that I mentioned, that he was to be a blessing to all the nations, but I think partially because of his nephew, Lot. Now, it's interesting. We're not told about Lot in this text. A lot is not mentioned here, um, which to me at least turns us to say that's not the whole of why he wants mercy to be shown to Sodom. But I think it's there. It's under the surface. So he does it partially for his nephew's sake. He does it partially because he wants to be a blessing to the nations. And I think he has a concern for justice. Notice how he pleads. He pleads on behalf of the potential righteous persons who are there. And he argues with God that the wicked, he doesn't argue with God that the wicked shouldn't be punished, but he says to God, as a God of justice, why would you wrap up the righteous into that great judgment? Where is, where is there justice in that? Now, this is a really interesting thing. Um, he argues that, that, that the Lord should not wipe out the righteous with the, with the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. But who are the righteous? Who does, who does Abraham think the righteous are that are in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, putting Lot aside, he's saying if there are at least 50 there. Well, first of all, they're not part of God's people because that's Abraham and his family. That's a very narrow, select group of people that are all right there with Abraham. They are God's covenant people. So who are these righteous? God-fearers? Good folk who do good? Folks who are more or less reflecting the image of God and are marked by God's common grace? And possibly. I think that's probably what Abraham had in mind. That people that are just, you know, doing their, you know, living life as they should and not doing the wicked things that are, that are prevalent in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he says, if there are at least 50 of these generally good people, Lord, 
according to your justice. Don't sweep them up in judgment. What does God say? No, Abraham, no one is righteous. No one is good. I'm doing it. What 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 does the Lord say? He says, okay. If there are at least 50 people, I will not destroy the city. Well, now Abraham's got a, he's got a name. He's like, all right, I've got him. Now we're into negotiations. What about five less? You can't really go any, you know, like, what's five? It's 45. It's, you know, it's close to 50. Okay. Okay, Abraham. 45. Well, if you're going to do 45, let's get to a round number. 40. Okay, Abraham. 40. Oh, Lord. I'm nobody. I'm dust of the earth. I'm dust to ashes. You're the living God. But 30? Okay, Abraham, 30. 30. 20? 20. How about 10? Yes, Abraham. Okay, that's as far as I'm going. 10. It's interesting in the text, the way it works out, is in God's responses to Abraham, they start out fairly full. You'll notice in in, in the the first petition um, that the Lord says, uh, he says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Or before that, um, he says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. But you'll notice there's this reduction from 50 to 45. The Lord gets terser and terser. And one of the commentators noted that it seems like as you move down, the negotiation is getting a little tighter. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but by the end, Abraham is saying, okay, 10. 10 is good. If you find 10 there, that's fine. The Lord hears Abraham's intercessions, and he listens. The Lord hears Abraham, and he says, yes, he's willing to save the city on account of just a few. It's quite remarkable. Here's the most wicked cities in all the earth. And Abraham pleads that there's just ten pretty good people. You see. Yet in the end, there wasn't even ten. It's questionable whether there were three. Though three are saved. Three come out. The reality is, the truth is, as God looked on Sodom and Gomorrah, there were no one, there weren't any that were righteous. Not in any real sense. And here's the wonder, the wonder of God's mercy. When Paul makes his argument in Romans, that whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, same argument he made in Galatians. Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, no one is righteous. No one, by the works of the law, can do anything. Nobody can, by their circumcision, nothing makes them right with me. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Here's the wonder of it all. There's an intercessor far greater than Abraham. One of Abraham's sons, his great, great son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that high priest who pleads 
on our behalf for those who are unrighteous. And he pleads on the basis of the righteousness of one, himself. But more than that, not only does he enter into the world and identify himself with the unrighteous, not only does he say, I'm going to live there in the midst of them, but he takes upon himself what we deserve. So not only does he make intercession, but he puts himself up as the propitiation for our sins. He takes upon himself the wrath and curse of God for you. This is what our high priest does. This is the mercy of God. Psalm 85 Psalm of longing for revival. Psalm 85 says these words. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Let me put this another way. Mercy and justice meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This is what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in the gospel the full weight of our sin. The cry went up from the earth to heaven that justice must be accomplished. And there as Christ hung on the cross, justice was done and poured out on him for us. Not because we were good. Not because we were part of the ten or the 40, or the 30, or the 50, or the 45. We weren't part of any of it. We were part of Sodom. Deserving His wrath and curse. What does this mean for us? To cry for justice. To cry for mercy. I'll just put it this way. We live in a world that is culturally being torn apart. Right? It's being torn asunder. Christians fighting each other. They're fighting the world. And we're all wanting justice. And we're all wanting righteousness. And we're, 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 we're getting ourselves desiring that thing. And I, and I would say, that's good. We need that. We need to fight for justice and righteousness. We need to go out and declare sin as sin. And call people to repentance and faith. And share the love of Christ with them. But we need to go out with mercy crying out to our Lord that He would open for the sake of the righteous. Friends, you are the righteous because you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and you are here in this land. And for the sake of you, God is being patient and enduring that people will come to faith and repentance. And so you have a responsibility to cry out to God for mercy. That He would open hearts and minds to see the wonders of His life. Cry for justice to be done. Make your hearts full as you cry for mercy. That we might see the redemption of God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.